Good morning, good evening, I'm Aaron, and today we have Brian. Hello, hello, hello. And special guest, Ed Saipetch. Hey, how's Say it going? <laughs> and welcome to episode 8 of the Cloudcast. We're coming to you live from our massive Cloudcast studios here in Raleigh, North Carolina. Today we spend some time with Ed to discuss Joint and his experience in the service provider and platform as a service space. So Ed, how have you been, man? It's been a while since we've talked to you. It has been. Uh, been pretty good. Been busy working at a startup. A little bit of a transition from, from working at EMC. Yeah, man. So talk about that. You know, a year ago, you were uh, sort of front and center uh, EMCV specialist. You're you're on the uh, the rap video. You're now working for Joyant. So you, you kind of fulfilled the prophecy I uh, I laid out earlier in my predictions, where I basically said, you know, there's going to start to be some guys who go from kind of the hardware centric world or the infrastructure centric world to kind of the software and cloud world. So what how's life been different? I mean, you're you went from infrastructure to service. You're now doing platform as a service. How's the world look different from you now? Yeah, so I couldn't really make life as a as a rapper. Uh, my dance skills just weren't there, so I had to kind of move on from that. Oh, come but on. Spent, you don't give yourself enough credit, dude. No, I, I think that's even giving <laughs> myself way too much credit. So uh, when I was at EMC, I kind of made this transition from working with enterprises to working solely with service providers. And that was a space that, you know, I started to, it was a really interesting space to me just to see how people were enabling cloud type features with infrastructure service in into the enterprise and so after working with service providers for a while you know there were a couple of opportunities that came up for me where people really that's a i guess it's a, a hot need right now in from a vendor perspective where people know how to go in and talk to service providers uh because it's as you guys know brian you especially is it's not about you know selling shiny features at the end of the day it's helping um these service providers actually sell stuff to their end users so it became a little bit of a hot commodity i was a approached by um, the folks at Joint and uh, saw what they were doing, and it seemed pretty interesting to me. So for folks who don't know, I mean, you, you've you talked about this a little bit on your blog, but you know, who is Joint? What do they do? What's their business? Joint actually was uh, a service provider. It has been a service provider for about um, six or seven years now. And you can kind of think of it as them starting out as, as a hosting company, software as a service a little bit with um, their collaboration products many, many years ago. But what they had to do is basically build the most efficient stack they could because they didn't take any funding. So it was very much a couple of guys in a garage figuring out how to offer a service up as efficiently as possible. Uh, they picked, um, oddly enough, they picked open. Solaris is their stack to build on, and they pretty much kind of pushed away from infrastructure as a service or, or hypervisor-based virtualization and did OS-based virtualization, which is uh, using Solaris containers. So they optimized the stack to work well for them uh, over time that that's matured. And about a year and a half ago, I think it was, is, uh, Intel Capital came along and showed um, some interest and said that they wanted to invest and kind of put the seed in their mind of, well, you know, you guys have this great product. You guys have been using it to run your cloud for six years. You guys know how to run this stuff. Why don't you go offer this up to other service providers? So uh, they took funding from Intel Capital, um, and they, we actually share a board member with, with Intel Capital. You know, so now it's been a, about a, a probably about a year-long march towards uh, transitioning from a service provider to actually transitioning to a, a software company. So, and, yeah. 
So, I mean, Joint had certain number of customers as a service provider. Are you guys staying in that business? I mean, your customers were folks like, I mean, like LinkedIn was one of your customers, right? Absolutely. So um, the way that they did it is, is I think it was probably about six months after that investment happened, they made those decisions that they realigned things internally and actually split the business into two. So there's actually jointcloud.com, which is the service provider you know, aspect of our offering, and then joint.com, which is the software sales part of our organization. And then they grew from about like roughly 25 people at the end of, of uh, 09, beginning of 2010, to roughly about 100 people now in, uh, in 2011. And a lot of that is just hiring a little bit more on the engineering front, um, and then a lot of sales and marketing stuff, right? Just to, to, you know, channels, alliances, all those things that you need when you're trying to sell software. Um, so it, it's it's been a pretty, I wouldn't say a 180, but it's definitely been a completely new area for, for them as a company to move forward into. I was going to ask you, Ed, so how much of your skill set from, from past experiences was transferable to something like this? You know, as, as a fellow infrastructure guy, I'm wondering, you know, how much of this you actually used from the old job to the new job. At the end of the day, you're delivering solutions, you're, you're solving business problems, but how much of that past experience were you able to reuse? It's kind of interesting. I, I'm not sure that a lot of people realize this when I was leaving EMC, but probably one of the biggest reasons I was hired is because I knew the infrastructure service to the VMware space. And the reason is because you can kind of look at Join as, so, so when they would go talk to customers, a lot of service providers they understand traditional infrastructure as a service. They understand vMotion. They understand HA. They understand, you know, shared storage. They understand virtualizing legacy apps and putting them in a data center. You know, when they were going to talk to customers, customers would always try to say, well, how do I relate this back to what you guys offer? Which, you know, in a nutshell, what Joint offers is both infrastructure as a service and platform as a service all kind of wrapped into one and a service provider can do what they want with it. But it's the attributes of it are different. Right. It doesn't we don't use shared storage. So we don't have HA. We don't have vMotion, those kinds of things. What we do have is, is a platform that's pretty lean that that developers and this is very similar to AWS. Right. In the sense that people can go ahead and deploy workloads, but you're really expected to put a lot of the protection, resiliency and scalability in at the application level you're not going to rely on expensive infrastructure to do that. So there was a ton of draw because I knew that space and they were constantly getting compared to that. And I just, I mean, I knew the motions. I knew I knew a lot about, um, you know, where service providers struggled. Um, and I knew a little bit about how they were trying to, to, to attack the market. So a lot of it actually was transferable. And I've just use a lot of that experience today. Sure. And so you bring up a very interesting point, something I don't know that I've ever really thought of, and you kind of made a light bulb go off for me there in the fact that what's going on is you're still going to have your HA and your continuity in some level of the stack, right? It's just where do you build it in? Do you build it in at a super low low level or do you build it in at a higher level? And as long as it's there at the end of the day, you can still serve the business, but it needs to be there somewhere, right? And if you're an infrastructure person, typically it's a lot lower in the stack. And so you're kind of moving up the stack. Yeah, exactly. There's always going to be legacy applications around that are going to need to do it lower in the stack. And as I think as things have been evolving, that stuff has continued to move higher up in the stack. And actually, it was funny because I think I saw a tweet from somebody uh, about a presentation Chad did at, at CloudSlam. 
And, you know, one of the things that Chad said was EMC is continuing to move up the stack in terms of software and commodity hardware. It's just, it, it's kind of just an example of how you can move and get greater efficiencies by doing things in software. And, and that's exactly what our target workloads look like. And it's important for us to differentiate those things up front because a lot of people will get confused when you're trying to explain the technology to them because they'll, if you look at it and you divide between startups and kind of enterprises, and that's, that's a, a pretty broad stroke. But the, the, the software startup guys really get doing it at the application level. And the enterprises are just now starting to get into this transition where they're understanding you can do things at the software layer. And I think, I mean, if you look at the cost, and here's just kind of an example. I mean, I, I was kind of tasked with doing an exercise, you know, comparing performance that we can give our end users and what it would take to use to, to do a, a traditional VMware stack. And granted, there are features that the VMware stack would have that we wouldn't, like you said, the HA thing. But if we looked at it a pure I.O. performance basis, I had to add roughly like $3 million worth of SAN hardware onto it with SSDs. And, you know, basically I was configuring using a bunch of different Solera's so we wouldn't max out the, the front ends. But to get the level of performance, it's a lot more expensive. But you do get things like high availability that you don't necessarily get in our stack. But that's just kind of like you figure out the, where those workloads need to sit because there's no single way to slice it all up. And then you kind of push the right workloads into the right spot and you get different attributes from it. I'm trying to wrap my head around how people can think about what Joyent does versus, say, what VMware does or something. I mean, VMware is very good, It's like you said, at taking existing types of applications, things where you can basically wrap up an existing OS plus application stack, virtualize it, be, be efficient with it. Is, is Joyent sort of look at that and they go, okay, those are, in essence, legacy applications. People probably aren't going to save any money necessarily from hosting those in the cloud at a provider, right? It tends to be sort of one-to-one dollars you'd spend versus dollars you rent or something. You guys are really targeting people that want to build newer types of applications, a different scale of applications, and start getting above where the OS provides a bunch of service and, and get to where the, the higher-level software stack provides a bunch of services. Yeah, that's a good characterization. The joint customers today, the vertical that joint has traditionally served have, have been, you know, SaaS companies or media companies or gaming companies, which have pretty interesting use cases around. They do need performance. They need burstability. And they're already starting to build that resiliency into the stack. And and once you start to do that, they're, they're reducing their costs. But we are seeing a lot more, you know, enterprise use cases too. And I think that's been my challenge since I've joined Join is when you go talk to service providers, they ha- they service different verticals from, from what you may have serviced. So getting some of those use cases of, okay, where are the new non-legacy use cases at and how do you describe them? Um, you know, that's been that's been probably, it's been a little bit of a challenge making sure that you can relate to what the enterprises are doing because ultimately they're going to continue to start to consume this stuff. Right, <clears throat> right. yeah. And, and the interesting thing when you're talking to service providers is you think, okay, I'm selling to those guys, but you, you start to realize after a while that they ultimately... They want you to, to put some technology in place, but they ultimately want you to have as much knowledge or more about a new set of customers, and they want you to help them define their marketing programs, their go-to-market, their packaging of stuff. I think that's, you know, a lot of times folks kind of forget that selling to service writers is sort of useless unless they can figure out people that are going to go use this stuff, right? And that's actually oh, yeah. something I'm going through right now because uh, as part of my new role, I'm in the service provider and verticals group as well. And one of the biggest things I'm learning very quickly because this is new to me is, yeah, exactly that. You're not just selling to service providers. You're selling to service providers to sell to their customers. And that is a very key point. 
Yeah, and it's funny because I think it's really, actually, it's really easy to pick up. But I think, you know, if you look at traditional enterprise software and hardware companies, a lot of people haven't had to make that transition or that switch yet. And it's actually, it's not a hard skill to pick up. And once you just realize that you're helping other people essentially make money and, and define offerings and they need to be successful selling this stuff to their customers, it's just an interesting epiphany, right? You just don't realize it until you're like, wow, well, you I came in and I talked for an hour about functionality and features and saving money. And they didn't really care about that, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you guys are making an interesting transition, right? So you see, we're seeing, and you know, Aaron and I have mentioned this on a whole bunch of other podcasts, like there's a lot of traditional vendors or infrastructure vendors who are making that decision that I want to get in the, essentially get in the service provider business, right? So Dell, HP, IBM, all these guys want to host their own clouds. You guys are sort of going in the other direction, right? You're in essence, I mean, maybe not completely, but you're taking a bunch of skills that you've learned about how to actually operate these things and saying, no, 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 I'm going to sort of refocus my business, go in the other direction and take that to potential new customers. Is that, I mean, you guys feel like that's a sort of a unique advantage for you because you've, you know how to run it and you're bringing knowledge or? Yeah, I, I would say so. I think that's, for us, it was, there were people who, Jason Hoffman and the guys who had started Joint, they had, and David, David Paul Young was the other guy that started Joint with Jason. They just had to make a growth decision. They wanted to keep, they, they <laughs> knew they had cool stuff and they wanted to keep going. So it was one of those things where, they were able to use that as an asset where if you look at the other guys, they have a huge customer base. So it's not necessarily that they're going in a wrong direction because, you know, if they if they're able to deploy more in terms of cloud services, then they can go ahead and capture or retain in uh, market or market share or customers that they already have. A lot of comments that we hear and it's hard for me to gauge how real this is and how much it is just kind of FUD that, that people have internalized. But a lot of people are worried about their customers leaving and going to Amazon. So traditional tier two, tier three, even tier one hosting companies that provide infrastructure service or managed services, they're worried about their customers going to Amazon. That's what they vocalize. So for them, it's, it's almost a defensive play to, to retain the customers that they have. And offer them something that, you know, is really speaking to the needs of where a lot of IT departments are going, which is essentially that business units are really tired of IT. And you guys, you know, we when, when we are all doing the VCE thing together, we, we heard this time and time again. When you go talk to a C-level person or a director or somebody in a business unit, you know, they would complain about how slow IT was. And that was the goal of VBlock, right, yep. is to, to, to give more agility to the IT organization. And the way I see join is really just kind of perpetuating that and adding on to that. One of the key, key distinguishing things here is that it's very hard to be a, a VBlock with VMware cannot be competitive with commodity cloud. It just can't. I mean, there, there's... Right. There, Dif different margins built in, different assumptions about complexity. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So so that's exactly where Joint has been able to fit in well, is saying, okay, well, it's you're not going to go purchase the AWS stack. And we've got OpenStack that's kind of out here and floundering. Rackspace made that play and decided to go open with it. Dell is, is adopting that. I'll get to Dell in a second. But it's still very much, you don't have training wheels when you're trying to deploy as a service provider. You're trying to deploy cloud to your customers. And I think that's the big missing gap there. And so there's a, there's competitors. There's cloud.com and a good handful of competitors which are using you know Zen or whatever underlying their technology and they're focusing on orchestration, provisioning, multi-tenancy, those kinds of things. But you see a lot of these service providers just saying, okay, what are we going to do to maintain a customer base? And it's so kind of competing against, uh, competing against Amazon is pretty easy right now. All you got to do is stay up, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Oddly <laughs> enough, yeah. For anybody listening yeah. to this. Three throws one from the peanut gallery. 
Yeah, yeah. AWS went, went completely tits up for a couple hours yesterday, and so it, all of a sudden they're pretty easy to compete against. Um, <laughs> and I, I kind of put this against so the just to talk about AWS real quick. I kind of put the AWS snafu yesterday along the lines of of VMware's big snafu a couple years ago, where they released a patch, and uh, I don't remember the exact details now, but it was like you know if you rebooted your servers, the HA didn't kick in, or, you know, or there was all yeah, this stuff. So, and, so it's like oh crap and and vmware took a huge black eye for that for a long time yeah it was uh basically they put in a feature and and they left a beta licensing thing in that That's pretty much right. disabled your your esx box yeah you know what the, it, we're kind of cautious about this because i think that the amazon thing though there is some interesting stuff around the concept of availability zones and their promises to customers that if you have servers split between availability zones you won't be affected their block storage um, it, you know, from what they're explaining so far is what where the hiccup was, and it actually went down across multiple availability zones. So the big thing there is, you know, people should be designing this into their applications. But you know, there was a promise there with Amazon that you wouldn't have issues if you split amongst availability zones. So I think it's going to be interesting to see how it plays out. If anything, you know, when you when you mention competing. You know, our customers go down too. We have hardware failures. We have those customers who have elected to just put their instances, Windows, Linux, you know, smart OS containers, smart machines in, you know, non-HA type scenarios. And they've been burned by it too. So we're, we're kind of, we try to try to be humble about this because we know it's, it's not easy. A lot of it's customer education. A lot of it is, a lot of it is engineering it's really unfortunate because I think the other thing that it really does for for everybody in the you know more grand scheme, if you look at VMware with Cloud Foundry and you look at VCE and you look at Join and all these people are trying to help people get to the cloud, um, it's really tough for us because I think now people point back and say, well, look what happened to them. How are you going to be different? And it's going to sure. be just. I guess, if anything, it's good because it'll be an education process, right? Well, and, and look at it this way. Basic systems design for high availability is no single point of failure, and that includes your cloud. And unfortunately, Amazon kind of found out yesterday, even in, you know, even in theory, if you have these ways of providing high availability, obviously they had a bigger single point of failure in their architecture on the back end yep. that they may or may not have seen before. Um, I, I mean, I'm not going to say by any means that Amazon was dishonest in their marketing. I just think it was a bug, just like there, you know, it just happens, right? So, so at the end of the day, it's, you know, whether you're whether you're buying local infrastructure, cloud infrastructure, it really doesn't matter because if, if you want high availability, you have to design for it and you're going to pay for it. It has a right. So, so let me ask this question because everybody kind of went back to like computer science 101 yesterday and there was all these, well, you're an idiot. Your, your site went down. You don't design for high availability. I mean, some of that's like you got folks like Foursquare or or other, I mean, like, they obviously have real, real smart people that work there. They're not, it's not their first time around the, around the rodeo. How much of that do you think is kind of transparency of what goes on in the cloud? So we're talking about Amazon, but this could be anybody's cloud, right? How much of it's, if you're an application developer, you kind of have a, you know, I mean, a really deep level of transparency of how code's going to work, the operation's going to work, or is that, what's the, what's that balance, right? Because Amazon obviously has a certain amount of intellectual property. Any of the guys, you know, people who are going to deploy joint cloud are going to have certain intellectual property about how they run stuff. And then you've got these, you know, all these new kind of open source, whether it's OpenStack or Cloud Foundry, which you mentioned. I mean, what's the, what's the right balance there between you know, for the developers having complete visibility to what's going on versus the operators going, you know, I got, there's certain stuff I got to, I got to be able to kind of hide, but, but trust me, it's, it's highly available. I mean, where, where's that going? 
Well, I think I think right now as we go through this transition of infrastructure as service to platform as a service, um, there's I think Amazon has the right in any well it could be improved but the right amount of transparency in terms of what you need to do is basically tell your customers um what their risk is and how they need to be responsible in mitigating those risks especially when you're talking about high availability um it it's it's i think it's going to get really weird as we start to go towards full paths where there's a lot of orchestration happening under the covers that people don't understand because then the, you know the AWS and the incident is pretty interesting because it's like they still kind of have some black magic or some you know voodoo that they they don't disclose but if you look at a lot of service providers that are doing infrastructure as a service which is exactly what Amazon is doing they don't use as much um i don't know a good way to word this but it's less proprietary and more traditional concepts where amazon abstracts a little bit of that away from you i think as we get into this i, I don't have the answer but i think as we get into paths full-on paths where there's a lot of auto scaling resiliency um those kinds of things happening underneath the covers you know it's going to be this awkward walk you know microsoft they haven't you know to my knowledge haven't had anything significant in the news about azure going down but they completely abstract a lot of those concepts away from the end user and you still if i think if you don't if you're not transparent about it then you have to you have to make it work for your customers or you know you need to be transparent and let them mitigate the risks themselves right sure but i think you know the other concern too is i I don't know you know as the stack continues to evolve maybe it's going to be a lot like how you know sans began back in the day where today we just blindly trust the storage array now there are issues with those storage arrays every now and again but we pretty much trust that there are some software orchestrating some commodity components underneath the covers you know hopefully it'll just get to the point where there's matures it's stable people know what they need to do as far as risk goes and and life just goes on and these kinds of things happen um you know, I was mentioning to somebody who had tweeted yesterday that my wife, uh, back when I was at EMC, and she's still, this is the case, but she's an EMC customer, and she had two SEV1 events go down two years in a row, and it was almost like on a yearly anniversary. But the array violated the five nines thing. You know, it went down for longer than five nines, and that's, nothing's perfect. Stuff happens, and the stuff, it doesn't mean it's bad, and that's going to happen to everybody, but there's no guarantees, right? You have to engineer for those kinds of things, and that's what, you know, the three of us have lived in the enterprise space it's all about making sure that you've got dr scenarios and you know you're you're able to recover it's not designed like the space shuttle and if it were designed like the space shuttle we wouldn't be getting very much done in the cloud or the enterprise space right Right. so you know it's space shuttle has its they have their hiccups too, so there's there's way more way more visible than ours. So so let's get back to the joint stuff and the cloud foundry and all this moving around. It feels like there's like kind of two maybe really big stages or transitions coming up, right? You you talked about infrastructure as a service to platform as a service. So there's got to be. I mean, Aaron and I have talked about this before. It's I mean, there's there's a that's a massive skill shift, right? Whether you're an infrastructure guy and you're trying to figure that stuff out, or you're just a developer and all of a sudden you're no longer writing to about you know, with the construct of like a single box or a single VM or a cluster of, I mean, how, how long do you see that transition between people understanding it, some of the right tools being in place? I mean, is this, is this just a couple of years because things go fast or that seems like one long transition. And then I'll, I'll, I'll get into what I think the other one is, which is all this sort of open portable stuff. So I, I think the transition, it's just happening with, at, at some point in time, we, 
we had developers that kind of transitioned away from big, large, lengthy, monolithic project cycles, building complicated apps to being more agile and using. And I don't know if or open source was an enabler for this. I think that's a, a good question to think about someday. But, you know, the transition has already happened. So what you see in organizations, what I've seen is, is you get, and I think this is a lot like VMware as well. You get the guys who are, that's their language. They picked up, you know, Ruby or PHP or some type of language. And they're like, I can stand something up quickly and I can code pretty quickly. I don't need to do this in Java or C++. So you already have those people in organizations today. And I think the, you know, the rough length of time that they've been in the enterprise or just in the market in general is probably about five to seven years. These people started to trickle in where they were like, hey, we're going to do things a little bit differently. Might have been even a little bit longer if you look at places that had websites and stuff like that. But, you know, these people were really starting to go on the cutting edge. So you see a lot more of that now. It's funny, I was in an enter- with an enterprise customer who's in interested in joint and they were trying to build like massive log aggregation they weren't happy with what was on the shelf you know they basically powered up two boxes put linux and python on them writing an application to do massive log aggregation for the enterprise and he was going to be able to do it just one guy taking about two to three months to do it and that's you know we typically didn't see that a long time ago right we always look for off-the-shelf stuff and we spent two to three months integrating the -the off-the-shelf stuff so i think it's hitting quickly and it's just hitting in key areas where you've got some of these new thinkers trying to get things done a little bit quicker. And the business, I think, is also being challenged to be, you know, much more agile and be much more competitive. You know, I always bring up the Eli Lilly example where they're doing pharma compound research in AWS and they're using, you know, Elastic MapReduce and Hadoop to get it done. But that's an example of a company saying, hey, we can actually use the cloud to gain a competitive edge. It's not just to reduce costs. And those are actually the workloads that fit fit the best on, on, on joint because people are thinking about instead of saving costs, it's how do I make money? And that's not from a service provider perspective. That's from just a broad company perspective. Okay. And so is this, uh, when you're talking about joint in that kind of context, are you talking about the Node.js? Um, a little bit. So, the, a, a couple so tell me things. a little bit about that because I'm 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 fuzzy on exactly what this is and 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 how it works. So give us yeah, the Node JS 101. So let me step back before we get to the to the Node thing and just kind of explain the the stack and how I, I mentioned a little bit that we cover infrastructure as a service and platform as a service. So the building block, like I said, was it's we forked Open Solaris and we're contributors to the Illumos project. We, we have a bunch of talent that left Oracle and came on board because they were just fr- frustrated. So the creators of um, some of the ZFS team is there, which is basically, you know, uh, for those who don't know, it's pretty insane, high-performance I.O. in a file system. Then we've got the, the creator of Dtrace, which is uh, Brendan Gregg. I think he probably had some other people that work with him. And Dtrace is analytics. And then we also have the creator of, of zones or containers. And so you put those things together, and now you have this basically this infrastructure as a service stack. We can actually run KVM on top of our stack to enable Windows and Linux VMs to run as well. But so that's the foundation. And then you can, you know, really infrastructure service at the end of the day, you get really fast IO and you get a lot of introspection, which means that as you start to move workloads into the cloud, you can actually see what's going on in terms of system calls, system latency, where performance problems are. We found like a 10 year old MySQL bug where after a certain number of connections, this thing would just go to sleep, which is not what you want to do. You know, when you're trying to deal with high throughput connections. So we actually, um, DDTrace has been a phenomenal tool for users and for us. So you use that and then you, you, you have these smart OS containers, which are basically Solaris Unix containers where any type of POSIX software will run. 
And on top of that, you can build a PaaS offering. It, it's not uncommon for people to put Java, PHP, Ruby in these little smart machines, where, which are essentially VMs. They just don't have hypervisor overhead. Um, and we can allow them to burst to, if the box has 24 cores, we can let one guest burst to 24 cores. And also they have, you know, they have a low footprint while they're doing it. So you start out with that. And, and that's where Node.js is kind of interesting because Node is a, a server-side JavaScript technology that uses uh, Google's V8 JavaScript engine. It's just Unix software. You put it on any type of, you could put it on Linux if you want to, but you know, we put it in smart machines and people are able to basically write JavaScript's code on the server side, you know, do anything that they want to that they would do with traditional a traditional pass type play. Though the way Node.js is different is that it's first it's evented. So basically it only sits there and, and responds to things when an event comes in. So an example is you want to write a DHCP server. You're not going to have something sitting there, sitting on a socket, just listening constantly using CPU cycles if you don't have to. So we actually wrote a, rewrote DHCPD in Node because of the fact that when you write to Node, the overhead, since it's evented, it's an evented language, it basically doesn't hold resources open while it has connections open. Um, and also, when it does have connections open, they're extremely tiny. So we can hold open a lot more TCP IP connections. We can operate on a much smaller footprint than, say, Java or Ruby or Python, which contributes to the whole performance and latency story. So you get this really, I don't know if people realize it, but JavaScript is actually the most ubiquitous language on the planet. You know, that's what everybody knows. Everybody's written written for it, written to the browser for it. Now we're just taking those same constructs and doing that on the server side. And so you, you just kind of see a lot of adoption where people are like, hey, instead of writing my backend services in Python or C++ or whatever, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do them in Node. So we have a Node service today. That's pretty much a PaaS offering where you use Git to upload your code. This is kind of funny because we're infrastructure guys. We didn't typically get what developers do. But what I've started to learn pretty quickly is developers have source control. Um, and a lot of them use Git. And what they want to do is just push their code to a server and have it be running. And they don't want to think about like, oh, do I FTP this up there? And do I have to worry about configuration files and processes and stuff like that? And with Node, they don't have to, right? They upload their code and it goes. And it's funny because when the Node program's running, if it dies, it's the server's intelligent enough to restart it. And if it restarts it a couple of times and it fails, it'll send you an email. But if you think about that, that's kind of like bringing a lot of DevOps and rapid development together using one of the most ubiquitous languages on the planet. And it's a pretty powerful thing. An actual use case, and I'll bring this up to just kind of get it to gel, is uh, there's an app called Voxer for the iPhone, which is two-way, it's like a two-way walkie-talkie radio thing. I use that. Um, it's cool. I like it. I, I, well, do I you heard, really? I heard, I mean, I, I you know, I was, I was trying to figure out the Node stuff. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and yeah, somebody had written an article, but I don't know if it was GigaOM or somebody had written an article saying, yeah, this is a, like a legitimate app that uses this stuff. So yeah, my wife and I use it like when we're out and about. It's just like, it's like the old Sprint, you know, walkie-talkie feature they used to have on the phone. So it works. It's cool. Uh, it works good. Yeah. So um, what happened, that, that was, uh, the story's on the register. So if you, if you search for Node.js, the story will come up. But basically, the guys at Voxer had to make a decision on what they were going to use on the back-end services. So you have an application, but you still need to get, you know, voice data from point A to point B, and you need to do it pretty quickly or else it's going to be, you know, like telegrams versus actually 
a walkie-talkie. So they decided against C++ because it was too slow uh, to, to get it developed and out the door, and it was a little bit cumbersome. So they were going to do it in Python, but they hit latency issues with Python because Python is typically a bit heavier. You know, they went ahead and used Node, and that's just, you know, they're, they're able to do some insanely, you know, low latency, high throughput, many connections in, in very small footprint. Our Node machines on no.de, which is our Node service, are just 128 meg machines, and they can have thousands of connections open. We also ran through a POC at a, at a, at a wireless carrier that we're going through right now, where we can actually effectively, with an application, achieve 10 gig line rate speeds using Node and doing hundreds of thousands of TCP connections on one server. Right? That's not even like that's that's not like 10 servers aggregated together to get that kind of throughput. You know, so we're probably going to come out with um, publish that story soon. But you know, it's just one of those things where it's quick to develop in and it's really fast. And it's something yeah. that it's something that that Joyant. I mean, I know the the guy who invented it basically works for you guys and and you sponsored. Is that something that sort of like intellectual property for for Joyant, or is it just you're the furthest ahead with it? But it's still it's based on on JavaScript to a certain extent, and you're just you're pushing it forward because you think it's the best way to go for you know to sort of write certain kinds of applications. Um. So we. we we hired Ryan Dahl, who is the creator of Node.js, and we open sourced the project um, just for, for adoption. But we definitely think, if you look at tracking the adoption of it, um, we really feel it's the, it's it's kind of that next gen language and what which a lot of things are going to be built going forward. So we pretty much bought the IP and then open sourced it. But there's a, you know you can take that code today and you can you can run it anywhere, right? We so we don't actually today there's there's a couple of different streams happening with Node.js where HP has actually replaced Java in the WebOS phones with um, with Node.js. So it's running all the backend services on every single WebOS device out there. So we we kind of look at it as today there's you know licensing agreements and stuff like that going on with with some of the OEMs um, from a you know a raw developer adoption approach we actually don't we don't really make money off of node.js right it's one of those things where we're still trying to figure out how we want to play with that and how we want to get market adoption but what we do make money is on is a smart data center 6 which is you know the technology that I was talking about before which node runs very beautifully on top of right. but you know you know so today people who are deploying node apps that they'll still have to consume compute of some sort and you know we're able to offer that as a service okay well cool and then but but and then node is nodes also part of part of cloud foundry right it was one of the along with with uh, rails and and java one of the couple languages that's out initially does that put cloud foundry concept in in competition with with what you do with with smart cloud or is that a complementary thing how do those play together i think it's complementary i think you know so join a lot like the companies that we're from is they're you know they're pretty i guess they're pretty open to a lot of different ideas and whatever whatever is going to succeed in the marketplace they're willing to run after um so that's why they keep a, a couple of different irons in the fire it's, it's one of those things where it's just incur again it's a good it's good for node adoption for there to be more options out there yep. um and then of course we're going to just continue to try to hammer home and and be successful selling smart data center to service providers so that's really the thought process right now is just you know get get as much adoption out there as possible we'll see how things turn out yeah well i mean it makes sense you guys have you've obviously shown people that you can go through transitions of businesses and business models so if this is the next trend it's it's good to be out in front of it right yeah i mean we really feel that if you look at it at the end of the day platform as a service is going to be 
where people go because they, you know, people who are developing those new applications want abstraction from infrastructure. Um, so that's kind of like it's it's still again it's ahead of its time, and I feel like Joint still with Smart OS and Smart Data Center is a little bit ahead of its time because it's still the people who are programming and and developing on PaaS or even just building like we talked about resiliency into the application and scalability that's still not pervasive yet right it's still it's i think it's going to take a while and it's just going to be this long this long cycle especially in the enterprise space but you there's enough there where obviously it makes sense to go off and and start selling software because there is a lot of demand there's there's a lot of interest um it's just insane the amount of the amount of service providers that want to have a pass offering for their customers today they're they're that they're just they keep knocking on the door yep it's interesting, man. We've got you know we've got the the infrastructure service guys about halfway through what they call their journey. The PaaS guys are just sort of starting out on their journey. Uh, it'll be interesting to sort of see where the two converge. So we've been talking for a while, man. We we appreciate your time. People people want to buy you a drink and talk about this stuff over the next couple of months at shows and events. Where can they find you? Where are you going to be? So I'll uh, I'll definitely be at Interop. Um, which is in uh, the middle of May, our second week of May. Um, and then just kind of, you'll probably just continue to see me around a little bit more, and I'll, I'll keep tweeting about where I'm going to be, uh, Ed Sai on Twitter. And then um, I'll try to start blogging a little bit more. It's been a pretty intense couple of months, but um, I'll, I'll keep people posted on my blog on breathingdata.com. Well, there's that, plus, you know, you are the, the infamous banana bread guy. Is that still in effect, or are those guys, is that, those guys still in business? No, the, yeah, they're, they're still in business. It's still in effect. I just don't get in the middle of twit pisses anymore. <laughs> you retired from donating to the community. He's no, he's oh, no, yeah. no longer in yeah. the breaking banana bread business. Oh, my God. That, that, I mean, it, it, was, it was fun and good, and I'll send it to anybody, but I definitely don't get in, in, in the middle of those things anymore. <laughs> Actually, speaking of twit pisses, it's been kind of quiet lately. I'm not sure... Uh, there haven't been a whole lot of dust-ups lately. In, in people are Twitter actually versus. working. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a nice thing, isn't it? Like, people actually have crap to do instead of uh, sit there on Twitter all day. Exactly. Yep. Well, well, Aaron, you want, to, right. you want to wrap it up? Take us, uh, take sure, us home? absolutely. So, thank you very much, Ed. That's it for this week. You can follow us on Twitter at thecloudcastnet or reach us at thecloudcast.net where you'll find links to the show and show notes. You can leave us a comment or send us an email and details on how to stream us on Stitcher. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Dad. Thanks to all our listeners. Talk to you next week.